Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Roadie on the Horn podcast. Today is Wednesday, December 13th at time of recording. We have an awesome podcast going over last week's news in sports. We'll first go over NFL, college football, baseball, basketball, hockey, kind of a jam-packed podcast with news and notes. And then we'll get into questions as we do on every podcast. But let me introduce my awesome friend, my great co-host, Donnie. Donnie, how are you doing today, man? You know, I'm good. I just want to mention before we even get into this, um, I after the November 19th victory from New York Giants over the Washington Commanders, I said that I expected the Giants to not win another football game this season, RK. And I, I'm I'm just going to come out in front of it before we get to NFL talk. I believe that I have played a big part in jinxing the Giants draft pick this year uh, after uh, making those comments on November the 22nd. I'm I'm fully I'm fully aware that I, I may have I may have made a, a, a huge error in, in saying those words out loud. Uh, I, I'm really the more the more days that go by, RK, the more I'm realizing I may have really made a large mistake here. Yeah, your your impact on the success of the New York Giants has really been significant, Donnie. I mean, just the bulletin board material for Tommy DeVito uh, when he's at a, having dinner with his parents at home uh, before a game where they're like, hey, you guys hear this? Donnie said that we're not going to win. And he's like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to bring my agent and I'm going to bring my family and they're going to be watching this game and they're going to be having a great time and the Giants are going to win. And that's what happened. Yes, I, uh I, I don't know what why me specifically why me why not like I guess we we just got to get into it RK but like wh- what did I do how did this happen how are we here yeah let's uh let's just talk about the Giants right now to start off the podcast I got a win over the Green Bay Packers Monday Night Football uh I mean it was a close game close win for the Giants they uh now currently sit um with a five and eight record still somehow mathematically alive uh in the playoff hunt I don't think that that's really a uh real serious threat by any means um but like you said on the uh, draft pick front um right now sitting at the eighth selection which is obviously um you know we were talking about Caleb Williams range uh earlier uh this year after uh this three game win streak here uh for the Giants so uh let's just talk about this game against the Packers Monday Night Football there was two games going on at the same time both were pretty close and tight but what'd you see out of the Giants uh that got him a win over, uh, you know, the Green Bay Packers. Yeah, I don't know if it was necessarily anything the Giants did specifically, especially offensively. It was a pretty dry offensive game um, from just in general. Like Tommy DeVito ended up winning uh, NFC Player of the Week with 158 passing yards. I'm not sure if they're just really digging into the whole, um, you know, Gabagool storyline, I guess. Like we're really buying into the Italian, the Italian vibes here. Uh, so much that they they gave a man who didn't even get 160 passing yards player of the week uh, for winning this victory, but uh, for winning this game. But obviously, um, a good game from Saquon. Touched the ball quite a lot, as you would kind of expect. Um, Jordan Love, after everybody was talking up Jordan Love for the last couple of weeks, had just a, a really abysmal performance, I think you can say, through 40, 40 times, uh, barely eclipsed 200 yards, made some really key mistakes there. Um, either missing receivers, which is not something that we've seen out of Jordan Love. I think uh, the last couple weeks, especially, you could have sit, sat there and seen, after, especially after the Chiefs performance, you would think, like, okay, Jordan Love is really turning his turning the quarter into his own. Uh, but I think we have to talk about it, RK. They put a side-by-side graphic of Aaron Rodgers' first 12 games versus Jordan Love's first 12 games 
on the uh, on the broadcast during the game at the beginning of the game. And I, I think that we may have seen the biggest TV jinx of all time. Uh, I'm I'm going to get out in front of this one here, too, and say maybe Jordan Love's career is peaked at this point. Maybe we're going to see it go downhill from here, given that comparison to Aaron Rodgers through his first 12 games because the statistics were very similar. Um, I, I really just, you know, I, I don't understand – the, the comparisons. I don't understand the storylines. It feels silly to even say that out loud or put that they made some a graphic designer getting paid a legitimate amount of money. They made a graphic designer put together that graphic and then they had the announcers go over the graphic and actually talk it up as if there was some sort of real comparison there. Um, nothing to do with the actual football game, but just the NFL. NFL broadcasting, NFL media, they love their storylines. And let me tell you, I think they, they fully broadcast jinxed Jordan Love in this one um a Giants victory not a good Giants victory not a Giants victory you want uh, as you mentioned they play the Eagles still twice this year so playoffs are out of the question we're not even considering that um it's stupid but we we've been doing this podcast for a long time RK this is prime Giants end of the season uh the season's over let's start winning some games football this happens every time the Giants are even close to getting the number one pick um I think both you and I ha- kind of expected this in the back of their head. Like, okay, they're going to they're gonna pick it up. They'll win a couple games down the stretch that they don't deserve. Maybe we'll see them beat New Orleans next week too, just to keep the keep the drive alive here, keep things fun. But yeah, it's uh, it's really bad. And I'm sure as an Eagles fan, you're very excited to have two Giants games in the last three weeks of the season just to, you know, fluff up the resume a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it's nice from an Eagles front, but it's just weird watching the Giants have some success here with Tommy DeVito doing it with the same group that Daniel Jones was working with. And, uh, you know, somehow he's been able, you know, not like he's been playing spectacularly or anything like that, but um, just getting it done, you know, completing passes, game-winning drive at the end, you know, give him just credit there. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you you mentioned the storylines. I mean, I just think the whole thing of, like, comparing him to the Sopranos and, like, this Italian family taking over the job. Giants, New Jersey guy, and, his, uh, agent. Yeah, his agent. The, the agent is, is so funny, so good. You brought that up. I was sitting there. I saw the pictures, and then let me tell you, it's exactly what you expect. It's literally, it's literally so spot on to the point where like the agent had to go out of his way to look like that. Like he did that on purpose, knowing he was going to get TV time. I respect the hell out of that. That's a, that's a that's a power move. If I've ever seen one. Yeah, I was uh, I was actually watching the uh, the Manning cast uh, while this was going on. Uh, just since both games uh, were going on, two Monday night games, and he, somehow Eli Manning pulled out the fun fact that his agent's nickname is literally Slimy, like Sean Stellato, this agent for Tommy DeVito is literally his nickname is Slimy, and he's an NFL agent wearing all black with a top hat and like kissing Tommy DeVito's parents after the Giants win. Like I'm just like, what is going on? Like how am I watching real life or am I watching a movie? Like I don't know. Like, I still. <laughs> <laughs> I really get it, but it was hilarious. It was unbelievable that that was happening. But yeah, Giants win, and uh, yeah, you said it. They take on the Saints next week. Rare week in the NFL season where the Giants won and the Eagles lost. So the script has turned a little bit on us, Donnie. Uh, maybe not for the better for you, but nevertheless, the Eagles got smacked again. Cowboys uh, beat them by 20 points, and really, it was probably worse than that if we're really being honest. Eagles offense uh, pretty much did nothing in this game. Their highlights uh, offensively were a Jalen Carter fumble return touchdown and a fake punt from Brandon Mann to Olamide Zacchaeus. Like, the offense was really bad. 
Uh, give obviously Dallas a, a ton of credit, but um, yeah, pretty disappointing second week in a row for the Eagles where they lose to, um, you know, other teams in the NFC that they are now trailing. Uh, good news for the Eagles, as you said, still two games with the Giants so they can get back that tiebreaker um, if they can win out the rest of the way. But um, obviously tough to see, uh, you know, the Eagles on a little bit of a slide, tough performances, defense not really stopping anybody, offense not really being as consistent or flourishing as you'd like. But, um, you know, I guess the spin zone is better now than in the playoffs, but um, they're going to need to turn this thing around, uh, you know, against good opponents because um, they had been winning some of these games and pulling out late comebacks, but um, these last two games really kind of got exposed um, pretty badly. Um, and, and obviously the scores reflect that um, for the Eagles. So um, they move on. They'll play in Seattle on Monday night football this upcoming week, another relatively tough game, but um, they'll need to kind of start um, getting back on the winning ways, um, you know, before, uh, before the playoffs here, the next little bit, um, any observations, uh, out of Cowboys Eagles for you Donnie yeah I mean I just wanted to ask how it felt being on the other side of the usual Jake Elliott um, master class you got to see Brandon Aubrey uh, who again out of nowhere is is the best kicker in football apparently um, he's hitting from 59 and 60 with with ease like it doesn't look like it's much trouble for him it's like Justin Tucker-esque um, obviously you've seen it quite a lot with Jake Elliott. So it's like, it's, it's interesting to have the other perspective that must've been crazy. Every time they got past half field, you, you just knew anytime they were in the Eagles, Eagles side of the 50, it was, they were getting points probably. I mean, obviously, um, errors happen, but how did that feel sitting there? Just Brandon Aubrey masterclass, literally like, I think I'm not mistaken. He had five field goals of 40 plus, including two of 59 and 60, like, what do you even say about that? Yeah, well, especially because this guy didn't even kick in college. He was literally an MLS soccer player, and all of a sudden he's like, you know what, I'll try kicking. And now he's gone on to have the longest streak in NFL history to start a career without missing a field goal. You're like, what? what is going on in the NFL right now? Tommy DeVito, Brandon Aubrey, like these guys are just coming out of nowhere and all of a sudden tearing things up. Like uh, it's very strange, but um, yeah, I mean, it, it was a it was a pretty good pounding the Cowboys put on uh, the Eagles, you know, at all phases uh, of this game. So um, yeah, special teams very much included. And uh, it was weird that um, like a random kicker all of a sudden for, for Dallas is, uh, is just draining these long kicks um, for the Cowboys. But uh, yeah, nevertheless, tough loss for the Eagles. Uh, pretty ugly one was, was tough to watch that one. But um, yeah, like I said, still, uh, a path for them to reclaim back the division probably not the one seed unless they can get some help from the Niners losing now but um, nevertheless uh, still a route for the Eagles to get back um, in terms of leading the NFC uh, East uh, two other games we want to hit on uh, in the NFL that we saw one of them was pretty good between the Bills and Chiefs two pretty good teams in the AFC pretty regularly uh, the storyline here was Kadarius Tony lining up offsides and Patrick Mahomes blaming the refs instead of blaming Kadarius Tony for lining up offsides so that one was pretty ugly <laughs> to follow uh, that uh, after, um, you know, that game unfolded. But give Buffalo some credit here. I think, you know, they started off this game pretty hot. Kansas City clawing back in it uh, a little bit. And uh, Josh Allen's able to get, you know, a drive there at the end of the game before the Kadarius-Tony offsides play um, where they were able to get a game-winning field goal, as it turns out. So Buffalo still, um, you know, we figured they would kind of scratch and claw, you know, even with a tough tough schedule, um, you know, remaining for them. But um, AFC playoff picture is still very much jam-packed. Somehow the Bills are in the 11 seed still. Um, don't have the tiebreaker over uh, many of these seven teams none of them so um you know only a game back of potentially being the five seed but um here they are and uh very much back 
um, due to the tiebreaker. But um, we figured the Bills would be good. And then for Kansas City, still leading that division, but um, another loss, eight and five for them on the season. I feel like a lot of their losses have kind of been games where you're like, oh gosh, what? How is this happening? You know, they're right there. Patrick Mahomes is still playing great. Receivers maybe kind of letting them down a little bit. That's kind of been a common theme for the Chiefs, but um, nevertheless, a, a pretty good game between two uh, of the better teams in the AFC. Um, what'd you think on either the Kadarius Tony play or this game as a whole uh, between Buffalo and Casey? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think a lot of people have lost a little bit of respect for Pat Mahomes after everything that's come out, obviously yelling at the refs at the sideline, uh, telling Josh Allen it's the worst call he's ever seen. Um, I, and I do understand the perspective of, oh, okay, he lined up off sides. We didn't get a warning. Usually we get a warning. I get the I get the thought process there. And I mean, I think if you were on that side, if you were the quarterback on that play, you didn't do anything wrong. So you should theoretically be angry. But he, the the anger is misguided very clearly. Um, Kadarius Tony, the only thing you have to do before lining up is just make sure that you're set in the right formation and behind the, the line of scrimmage. That's literally the only thing you have to do leading up to the play. Don't even have to talk about a running a route. Don't even have to talk about doing anything else. All you have to do is just line up correctly. He didn't do it. Um, people were very upset. Andy Reed was very mad, which is not something I usually get out of Andy Reed. Um, Andy Reed is, is, as I think you would note, very level-headed, uh, has always been very level-headed. doesn't usually complain about a whole lot. Kind of just one of those guys that says, Oh, I'm going to take it on. I'll take it on the chin here and move on. He was mad about it. So uh, I guess maybe there is some credibility to the, the side of the chiefs being a little bit upset without the warning or anything, but I, I don't know if you agree with me. It was so egregious. He was so far off sides to the point where like it, there's, there's not even an argument in my opinion. There's literally, even with the blue line, you can see him lined up uh, very, very, he was like lined up at the same spot as where the, the uh, defensive line was. So, um, I I have no no issues there. I have no words. The only thing I will say is uh, it's very uh, unfortunate that the Travis Kelsey play didn't end up counting because it was just a, a masterclass of a, oh, I see an opportunity to make something big happen. I'm not only going to see this opportunity, I'm going to clutch through this opportunity, uh, making a really, really nice backwards pass to Canarius Tony, who was just sitting there unmarked for, for 20, 25 yards. Um, it's a shame that that didn't count, but yeah, I mean, like, I, you can blame Kadarius Tony for multiple losses this year, and Kadarius Tony is just like a gadget receiver. He's just a, a utility player to have. I don't know how he's getting this much, like, leeway or getting this much slack uh, from the Chiefs organization. You would kind of think uh, if this happened, another, like, if, if this happened to the Eagles with a, a receiver like that who was not super important, their third, fourth, fifth receiver. Like he wouldn't be on the team anymore. Probably it's just, it, it's the reality of the situation is this guy is causing more headaches than he is helping on the field. Even if he does make big plays. Um, I don't know where, I don't know where you stand on this necessarily, but I'm, I'm a little bit surprised to see curious Tony getting so much, like he just gets so many passes. Yeah, I mean, who, like Rasheed Rice is like the only receiver doing anything, the rookie for them, I feel like, in the, in the past game. Like Valdez Scantling has been inconsistent this year. Watson has been inconsistent for them. Like they just haven't gotten good receiver play from anybody. So they, you're just kind of rotating a bunch of guys out there. Like Richie James is all of a sudden out there for, for the chiefs uh, out of nowhere. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I thought it was a bad look. Like the chiefs line up on sides. Like, you, you know, I feel like everybody in sports is always like, Hey, you know, deal with adversity. It was a tough play. Okay. You know, a called back penalty. It was still second down though. Like you still had two plays it's after true. that and completely folded. I mean, even going back to the Eagles game when Valdez Scantling dropped the, you know, go ahead touchdown. Like they still had plays after that. Like if you're Pat Mahomes, like I get it. You're frustrated. Your receivers aren't playing 
playing well. You've lost some close tight games, but you get you got to just kind of take it and move on and, and say, all right, you know, it was a penalty, but um, let's try to convert and, and still try to get some points out of it. You're only down three uh, in this game, and, and they weren't even able to get a first down to, to move the ball. So uh, kind of uncharacteristic, like you always hear the guys in sports like, oh, well, you know, hey, this play went against us, but we bounced back, we responded. I feel like the Chiefs did the complete opposite of this. Like Mahomes let that kind of get to him uh, too much, and it was riding with him, you know, plays after it happened when um, you can just drop it, move on. So um, just kind of surprising to, to see that for, you know, obviously two of the best in the game with Mahomes and Reed, but um, nevertheless, uh, Buffalo and uh, Sean McDermott and all those memes relating to what he's referring to as good acts of collaboration for the Buffalo Bills. But nevertheless, let's uh, let's just move on from that game uh, on to another terrible event. Uh, the Vikings and the Raiders, a three nothing game. I mean, uh, I'm not even going to pretend like I watched this game because it was horrible, Donnie, but. It happened. It existed. It was a real thing. A three-point game after we saw a 6 nothing game a week ago between the Chargers and the Patriots. We were one-upped here by the Vikings and the Raiders, a 3 nothing final. I mean, what do, you, what do you have to say for what's going on in the NFL right now when we're having a 3 nothing final score in an NFL game? Yeah, somebody who is employed to watch this football game, I, I did watch this football game, uh, large portions of it, alongside Red Zone. It did not show up on Red Zone very much, obviously, with a 3-0 victory for the Vikings, uh, the lowest scoring NFL game in 16 years, scoreless at halftime, one of two games that went scoreless at halftime, uh, the first time that has happened in like six decades, something along those lines, uh, usually uh, I believe the last game to go 0-0 at halftime was four or five years ago, so to have two of them this week uh, with Jets and the Texans doing that as well was a little bit concerning, but uh, just in general, I, I understand backup quarterbacks, I get it, I, I'm, I'm very, very we're we're very welcoming of the backup quarter backup quarterbacks at this point. It's just how the how the league has been this year. There's a lot of quarterback injuries, but man, like the Josh Dobbs hype, the train the the, the passer not hype went from like unbelievable story. He's a a potential superstar uh level media member. Like he's getting so much hype to uh, ten for twenty three, sixty three yards. Bench for Nick Mullins. We'll probably not see another NFL game this year. Uh, I do believe the Vikings are going to run with Nick Mullins for the, the remainder of the season, or at least moving forward here, uh, which is unsurprising. Like, I I feel a little bit bad for Josh Dobbs, maybe. They won the game, um, not like it mattered. And on the other side, like Aiden O'Connell, pretty useless. Like, kind of what, what you would expect, maybe. A really young quarterback in a bad position there. But at 3-0, like, how do you not kick a field goal or two? How do you not get the – like, I understand the league is hard. Um, two decent defenses. Obviously, we talked about the Raiders' defense a couple weeks ago being very, very good, but the Vikings' defense is generally pretty solid. I think this is inexcusable. This is like there's coaching, uh, coaching downfalls in here. There's personnel downfalls in here. There's a lot of a lot of issues when you can't score a point in a football game. You've got a lot of opportunities, and there's a lot of mistakes made in a football game. Like people fumble, picks are thrown. I, I, I it's stunning, honestly. Like I'm, I'm really surprised. And I, there was definitely a chance. It felt like at a point this game might go zero zero scoreless into overtime and and tie zero zero at the end of I, when that's a possibility. Like they need to both franchises really need to sit there and look at look at what they're doing and be like, yeah, we we this this has to change. We got to completely revamp what we got going on right now. Kirk Cousins would have never let this happen. That's all. Kirk Cousins wouldn't have allowed a zero zero football game until two minutes in the fourth quarter. 
Yeah, and adding on to all that, the Vikings certainly sit as a sixth seed in the NFC and in a playoff <laughs> spot. So uh, we may have not seen the end of this Minnesota Vikings uh, team, uh, even when the regular season comes to a close, which is crazy to say. But um, yeah, crazy week in the NFL. Uh, you know, we'll uh, we'll we'll cover uh, again next week uh, what we see uh, in these upcoming weeks leading into the playoffs. But uh, let's bounce around. We got a lot of news and notes uh, from miscellaneous stuff and sports. Let's talk about the Heisman uh, Award. Uh, was awarded to Jaden Daniels of LSU. Uh, we saw Michael Penix finish second uh, in this award. Wasn't terribly too surprising. Daniels was the favorite and uh, obviously end of the season uh, really strong. Um, had some big performances at the end of the year against Florida. Um, really ran the ball well in that game. Had five total touchdowns. Had uh, 300 yards passing, 200 yards rushing. I mean, just an insane performance. And then finished it off with Texas A&M. Uh, four touchdowns passing in, in that game as well. So finished the year really strong. But I do think it is at least a little interesting to note that obviously this historic has been a quarterback award and a lot of times it will go to teams that are in the college football playoff or won their conference championship obviously LSU they had three losses this year only beat one ranked team this entire season that was at Missouri it was an impressive win but um, interesting that Jaden Daniels edged out Michael Penix who uh, sure maybe didn't necessarily play the most smooth at the end but uh, bled an undefeated season for uh, Washington won their conference championship um, you know definitely didn't play bad by any means I don't think uh, had 33 passing touchdowns nine picks uh, this year over 4,000 yards passing. So I think it's interesting that, um, you know, Penix wasn't getting that edge. Um, you know, maybe some, you know, close games against, uh, you know, like Oregon State they had, Washington State at the end of the year. But um, it, it was at least a little interesting to me that um, it wasn't maybe a little bit closer between Penix and Daniels, just given the fact of how historically we typically see this award go to quarterbacks and it was quarterbacks here, but a lot of times those wins, you know, carry a lot of weight and you need kind of that Heisman like moment when, um, you know, Penix delivered, he had game winning drives against Oregon, uh, you know, this season, uh, you know, another top team that was, you know, vying for the college football playoff had a, you know, shootout win uh, against USC in a, you know, high scoring game. So um, any surprises at all that maybe Michael Penix didn't get um, as much consideration or did you think that you know it was Jaden Daniels all the way nothing too terribly surprising there yeah I think it's interesting uh I'm not surprised that this happened because the odds were so heavily slanted in Daniels favor um for the last week or two of uh the college football season until this point but uh when you look at the actual results I'm not sure if you looked at the actual broken down results by geographical location Uh, every uh, every location every little subset of the USA voting on this was close except the south the south really had Jaden Daniels very far ahead obviously there is we know there's SEC bias we know that there's south bias just in general in college football but to see it so heavily slanted like in the mid-Atlantic they were only separated by about 40 points uh, from first and second place, but you go to the southern southern bracket, it's 180 points of separation. So clearly, um, either the, the Southerners don't care about packed football, don't care about Western West Coast football, um, think that it was light or whatever, or it's just. I, I mean, I think it's very obvious that there's bias in the, these Heisman votes. Every year we see bias in the Heisman votes. This year, I think it's it's even more significant because the South. The Southern voters are never this seriously slanted away from a quarterback who went undefeated because if somebody goes undefeated in the SEC and they have a good year at quarterback, they are they are there. They're the Heisman, Heisman Trophy winner. Um, just interesting to see how Penix and I think maybe Bo Nix to a lesser extent got a little bit shafted um, just in terms of respect from the non from the very traditional markets. Obviously, the non-traditional markets like the Far West and Northeast were very supportive of Bo Nix and Michael Penix because they had great years. Uh, but the SEC bias and the Southeast voter bias uh, really, 
really did a number here, like a surprising difference compared to all the other regions. Wouldn't have been close either either way, probably had they voted a little bit more closely, voted for Penix more. But breaking it down by geography, you always you could really tell the bias is serious, and that I, I, maybe some of these guys didn't even watch Michael Penix play football this year to a point where like. I don't know. He he finished third in the voting for 140 people. Like, how is he not a top two candidate in any world? He literally had an undefeated season. He's in the playoff. Jaden Daniels lost three games this year. Like, I don't know. It's it, it's obviously it just is what it is. That's how the Heisman voting goes. But really surprised to see how the South decided to vote so heavily in favor of Daniels rather than Penix or Nix or even Marvin Harrison. Yeah, no doubt. I, I agree with that sentiment, just not historically how we get, but nothing against Daniels. Obviously he had an amazing season. And, and if anything, you kind of look back and like, man, that seemed like a missed opportunity for LSU this year to, you know, not win the SEC. If we're really being honest, some of those losses they had against Ole Miss uh, early in the year against Florida state and Alabama, uh, you know, maybe the, you know, you'll be looking back and saying, wow, we, we had a lot here. Uh, it's funny. Jaden Daniels was also the team's leading rusher by 500 yards, had the most rushing touchdowns <laughs> on LSU, which uh, is really interesting too, in a year where he also threw 40 touchdowns and, uh, had a really good receiver duo of Malik Neighbors and Brian Thomas uh, each have over a thousand yards and 14 touchdowns kind of felt in some ways similarly to Joe Burrow's season when obviously LSU went on to win the national title so a little bit different in terms of that but uh, offensively at least uh, you know just a second year explosion Jaden Daniels coming in transferring to LSU you know having a pretty good season uh, last year but really taking a massive massive step forward this year uh, improving his NFL draft stock and uh, I don't think he'll necessarily go first overall like Joe Burrow did but um, I definitely think we're going to see him in the high first round conversation because of what we saw out of his arm and and really I think mostly his legs like um, showing stuff like almost that you would see with Louisville Lamar Jackson this year when you're talking about over a thousand yards rushing and, and 10 touchdowns um, you know games with over a hundred yards rushing uh, you know consistently for Jaden Daniels this year I think that's really what kind of jumps out and, and can separate him uh, especially when you look at some modern NFL offenses and some of the top quarterbacks doing it like Jalen Hurts or Josh Allen or even Patrick Mahomes they're using their legs to make things happen as much as they are their arm and, and keeping defenses off balance so I think Daniels projects really well to the NFL and obviously the Heisman will help boost some of his stock uh, in that as well so um, good news there for uh, for LSU and, and Jaden Daniels end up winning the Heisman I uh, wanted to close the book on that uh, college football bowl season coming up we got some of the kind of sleeper six and six bowl games to start off but it'll start heating up here over the next couple of weeks and, and we'll hit on that so uh, let's bounce around again here Donnie let's go over to MLB uh, we ended last week's podcast podcast by saying how we didn't think Shohei Otani was going to sign anytime soon and then he signed like almost immediately after we uh, stopped the recording of last week's podcast so good news for you though he's an LA Dodger he's not going too far from Anaheim uh, to uh, Chavez Ravine in LA but uh, a 10-year 700 million dollar contract massive deferrals in this deal I mean it's a crazy uh, you know uh, one uh, when you really kind of break down the contract but nevertheless obviously you know the the star prize of, of baseball really at this point you know going to the LA Dodgers um you know what was your reaction um to seeing Otani uh end up signing with uh with your Dodgers yeah it's really interesting uh just what comes out after the contract is signed and everything happens is almost more interesting than it actually happening like just hearing the news that Shohei Otani is a Dodger because uh we've seen multiple teams come out and say okay we had similar deals or we were negotiating deals uh, of similar value uh one of them of note being the Giants who signed uh, a Korean outfielder shortly after losing out on Otani. Um, but 
yeah, it, it's really interesting to see the deferral thing because his contract goes from being worth seven hundred million dollars to less than seven hundred million dollars just with how money uh, values work, how money changes. That the amount of a dollar is not going to be the same in twenty forty three as it is in twenty twenty three. So he's going to end up more like five hundred million dollars worth of money rather than the seven hundred million with the deferrals. Uh, but it, it is interesting to see a player go so far to the point where they are like really trying to win games by helping their team uh, push away luxury tax figures or, as we said before, deferred money. You don't usually see players say, oh, I don't really care about what I'm getting paid. Like, you can pay me at any point. Pay me down the line. I just want to win right now. Um, It's commendable, maybe. Uh, And I think there's a lot of baseball fans and a lot of fans of the non-top 15 salary teams in the league that are like, what the fuck is this? Pardon my French. They're very, very upset. And we saw a lot of backlash saying, oh, like they got to do something about it. But this is written into the CBA for a reason. Uh, there's We've seen many players before, like Jacob deGrom, Max Scherzer, Steven Strasburg, all have really serious heavy deferrals in their contract, maybe not to the, to the tone of $680 million, because that's a really, really significant amount of money. But I, I, I find it kind of commendable to see Shohei Otani say, hey, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer you this contract so we can win games. You can go out and sign other players. They're in... Um, negotiations to add other players through trade and free agency right now. I'm sure we'll talk about that more uh, as the offseason progresses, but I, I just, the most important, the most interesting part of it all is just like the fact that he was so willing to say, Hey, um, I could get seven. I could probably get $600 million right now. Uh, sign on the dot guaranteed to me. I'm going to defer it for a while, live off of 2 million a year, which is obviously $2 million. Who cares? Plus uh, sponsorships and brand deals, stuff like that. It's it's fascinating. I'm sure that this opens up a can of worms that MLB, MLB maybe wasn't prepared for. And I'm sure at some point, a team like the Mets or the Cubs or somebody that has a, an unlimited pocketbook space um, down the line will end up using a similar a similar aspect of this to maybe uh, offer more money to a player that wouldn't have necessarily been there before. Um, I think this this is the start of what could be a really interesting era in Major League Baseball, free agency contract signings. Maybe this is good for for the offseason that we talk so badly about like every single year. Maybe this is a positive thing. Um, maybe you disagree. I don't know necessarily. There's a lot of uh a lot of argument about this Otani contract for sure. Yeah, it uh it definitely is uh is really interesting. And we know Otani is not gonna pitch in twenty twenty four. Um had a uh, elbow procedure done uh, in September, but uh nevertheless we know he's gonna improve that lineup next year and then you know should be back in that pitching rotation at some point, twenty twenty five, twenty twenty six range um for Otani. But it's interesting when you look at this, you know, historical contract comparison, you know, down the line years later, uh, you know, you can very easily make the case that Shoei Otani is the most valuable player in the history of sports, uh, when you terms of his value because no one else is doing both hitting and pitching once Otani recovers uh, and is able to pitch again for the Dodgers so uh, you know even in in future years five ten years down the line we get this superstar player you're like oh well could he get the Otani contract it's like well I mean can you argue he's providing enough to his team that Otani is I feel like it's just kind of you know always something we'll look at and be like well I mean he's kind of the he's the unicorn so um, you know we didn't know what he was going to end up getting and uh, you know as it turns out it's a lot of deferred money but um, if it was 700 million over 10 
10 years, you know, 70 million a year is an insane figure um, <laughs> that will be interesting to see, you know, will that ever really be topped? How long, you know, you think at some point in history, it would be topped, but uh, I'm thinking that'll kind of sit there for at least a little bit um, in terms of, you know, kind of setting the, setting the top ceiling for, um, you know, sports contracts. So um, that one was definitely really interesting and, and we knew it was going to be, but even the fallout and, and all the contract talk was, was really interesting to follow uh, for Otani. Uh, other big baseball news we saw uh, over the last week, Juan Soto on the move goes to the New York Yankees uh, from the San Diego Padres, along with Trent Grisham, uh, Yankees send back Michael King, uh, Drew Thorpe, Johnny Brito, Randy Vasquez, Kyle Higashioka. You know, the interesting thing here, obviously Juan Soto, um, you know, Yankees will need to re-sign Soto. So um, that's kind of why the uh, return was a little bit lighter than what the Padres gave up a couple years ago uh, from the Nationals, which the Nationals really are kind of, you know, cashing out big time on, on some of the guys they got back uh, from Soto. But Padres, Things didn't go well for them last season. You know, they're looking to kind of change direction a little bit. Uh, move Soto to the Yankees. Um, you know, big lefty bat. Um, obviously, that's what the Yankees like to covet with the short right porch uh, in right field. Um, but uh, what did you kind of make of, uh, of this deal um, with Soto heading uh, to the Bronx? Yeah, I'm not sure I ever understand returns in MLB. Like, I'm not sure I'm ever going to really get that. Like, I think the only league that confuses me more is football because NFL stars get traded for nothing. But it really felt like this was like a football-esque trade. Um, even if you were just renting Juan Soto for the year, like giving up Michael King as the top piece in a deal doesn't seem like that's that difficult to do, especially given the fact that we are in free agency right now. So let's say the Yankees did decide, hey, we need to add a reliever. Maybe we're going to go sign Josh Hader. Um I think most people would say, okay, the the increase from Michael King to Josh Hader is very significant. You're getting a significantly stronger player in that scenario, and he's free for the taking and free to see. All you got to do is just commit a lot of money to him, which is something the Yankees have shown that they are willing to do. Um, it doesn't seem like this the, the return was all that significant there. And as you mentioned with the Nationals deal, we're talking about Mackenzie Gore, who's going to be a long-term starter in, in the league for quite a long time, you would think. C.J. Abrams, who was a near-three-war player last year. And two of their top 10 prospects, including um, a couple outfielders who could very well be very helpful for them down the line in the same situation that Juan Soto was. Um, these are guys, you get four pieces for a player, and then a year later, they get swapped for what I would say, and I, I might I might be uneducated, uh, you know, I'm pulling my Shaq, my Shaq card here. I might not be familiar with their games so much, but like, is Michael King or Johnny Brito making that much of a difference to a baseball team? In a fact that you had to trade Juan Soto for them rather than like going into free agency and just signing a couple relievers, like I, I could be wrong. I could be very, very far off here. Well, we'll have to see how this deal ends up working out for their bullpen. But I, my thought process is that relievers are not that important. You can always find decent relievers in free agency if you want to commit money to them. You can you can find ways to commit money to guys and not trade your best player. Um it's it's confusing the Padres obviously they're cutting their losses they're having financial issues I was just really stunned to see it even if it is just a one-year deal and there are rumors that Soto may not want to negotiate a contract till the end of the year um it feels really light to me I don't know if you agree but it, it, it if the the returns always confuse me in Major League Baseball it, it's like a consistent the one thing that I can guarantee is I'm going to be lost yeah, the Padres just seem to be like super dramatic in like every move they make. It's like, oh, we got to go all in. We we have to get everybody. We're trading the whole farm. We built up this great prospect pool. We're going all in. <laughs> and like it got them like one series win against the Dodgers, which I guess for them, you know, that's kind of like the highlight 
long time, like uh, realistically. But uh, and then here they are. They're like, oh, sell everybody. We got no money. We can't keep Soto. Just give me a couple arms and we'll move on with our day. Like I, I just it's just funny how they operate kind of like a uh, MLB the show, like franchise mode <laughs> uh, kind of, so to speak. So. Yeah, that one was definitely interesting. Big ad for the Yankees, though. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think Soto is necessarily like this big home run threat that you kind of think of, but I think at Yankee Stadium, he should be able to hit a good amount, and we know he gets on base um, as good as just about anybody. So I think that'll be a good ad, even though you kind of know inevitably at some point Yankees fans are going to get mad at him for just having oh, of like course. a base percentage and, and a low batting average. Like, you know that's coming. <laughs> so uh, that'll be funny, too. And then he leaves, and he's only 25 years old, and he'll be a free agent next year. So he's going to cash out big time uh, You know when that happens whether it be the Yankees or somewhere else. So um, other last note out of baseball, Seth Lugo, another loss for the Padres uh, this offseason, but he signs with Kansas City three years, 45 million. So um, just one other note uh, out of baseball for us to hit on. But some big news out of baseball, obviously Otani and Soto uh, on the move. Uh, Otani not too far, but uh, Soto across the country. So big news out of baseball. That feels good uh, compared to the relatively slow MLB offseason as, as Donnie hit on earlier. So uh, let's bounce around to NBA. have not talked about NBA much. We didn't talk about the in-season tournament at all, and now it's over, but the Lakers won. So that's good news for Donnie and LeBron. Uh, the Lakers get the in-season tournament win. Uh, they ended up beating the Indiana Pacers uh, in that final. Uh, what what did you see out of the in-season tournament? How much did you follow it, Donnie? Uh, did you think it was a success? Give me kind of your overall thoughts on uh, on how this thing turned out here. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, you'd like to think that it was a success just given the fact that extra games means extra money for the team and then extra TV revenue, you know, all that good stuff. But uh, I, I don't know how much people necessarily cared. I do think that the uh, initial matchup in the in-season tournament against the Suns was kind of like the Super Bowl of the tournament if you were looking at uh, a good matchup. Uh, it didn't seem like teams were necessarily like super locked in um, in every game they played. Obviously, we saw the Pacers beat the Celtics and then beat the Milwaukee Bucks. Uh, and back-to-back games over a span of three days in the in-season tournament play-in to get to the finals. Um, I don't, I, again, I could be pulling my shack and maybe I'm not super, uh, super aware of what the Pacers bring to the table, but I, the Pacers don't seem like the team that should be representing a conference in a tournament like that. Um, I, I do think they are a much better team now than they were, say, two, three years ago. They have young pieces. They built a good squad around guys like Tyrese Halliburton, Miles Turner. Um, Buddy Heald is always very relevant on the court, a three-point shooter. Sometimes, depends on how what, what shows up, but uh, you would have anticipated a, a Lakers-Celtics matchup if there was a Lakers team in or a Lakers-Bucks, um, or even a team like the Sixers maybe making a deeper run. Um, the Pacers getting there, maybe it's good for the teams like the Pacers. They get a little bit of TV time. They get a lot of, I guess, media discussion, media talk. Tyrese Halliburton was everywhere um, the last couple weeks, which is probably really good for the Pacers. But I, I'm just not sure how much the casual fan cares. And I think I, I would call you and I casual fans for this this specific situation um, in terms of an NBA tournament being played while there's A, NFL games going on and B, like hockey going on. It just it, it didn't it didn't climb the totem pole for me. And I know it didn't climb the totem pole for you. And I, I'm sure there's millions of other basketball fans and sports fans that felt the same way. Just like, what what do I get out of it? I'm happy that players are winning money. I'm happy that the the back end of the Lakers roster, the guys that are signed to like two way deals that were just up as like the last man on the roster are getting paid. That's a really cool aspect of all of it. But like, I'm not making any money out of this. I'm not going out there. I'm not buying a an in-season tournament t-shirt like it's not it's not it doesn't mean that much and I think maybe over time it'll it'll grow and the results will be more more fun to watch and the prizes will be more significant but 
it just it seems like the timing of this was the biggest issue. Just way too early in the season to have a tournament. Like we the season just started last month, pretty much. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that big time with the timing. Like I think maybe, you know, I feel like Christmas Day is kind of like the NBA day. Like if you had, say, the championship game on Christmas Day, you know, you probably get a little bit more views, a little bit more buzz. Um, you know, in addition to having, you know, you're you're you get the Warriors and the Suns together or something like that. Like, you know you're gonna have some good games on Christmas. But I think if you kind of had like the nightcap, the Christmas night, you know, championship in season tournament game, you know, that's probably a little bit better spotlight than just doing it in early December when um, like you said, there's a lot of other things going on. And uh, I feel like the NBA you got to leverage it more you know i i imagine they're going to keep this thing going i don't think that's going to be a one and done type thing with the in-season tournament but um definitely could have been you know probably executed a little bit better to generate a little bit more buzz um in some of these games so i agree with you on all that um and yeah it was funny i saw a clip of like kobe bryant uh from years ago where he's like oh this this team talking about the lakers like we don't hang division banners we don't hang conference championship banners but they're hanging in-season tournament banners now that's what the lakers are doing so uh move over nba championship banners the in-season tournament and nba cup is coming with lebron that banner's going up at crypto so yeah just kind of a funny note how to the nba uh to wrap things up there uh last note for us uh let's move over to hockey donnie and then we'll bounce into a handful of questions for this podcast uh st louis blues they move on from craig berube they fire him uh it's been you know kind of an up and down season for the blues right now obviously very much down they've lost four in a row only won three of their last seven uh they currently sit in sixth out of eighth in the central division um you know this is a team that definitely has some talent we've seen you know robert thomas for example have uh, a pretty good start to his year pavel buchnevich has been solid uh for the Blues as well, but um, definitely not enough uh, for them to uh, continue on with with Craig Berube, obviously a guy that uh, won them the Stanley Cup back in 2019, but um, only one playoff series win since. So uh, I at least was a little bit surprised in terms of the timing of this. I thought if you told me that an NHL team was firing a head coach, I probably would have expected that to be in Ottawa, if we're really being honest, but it's St. Louis with Craig Berube making the move uh, at this point in time. Um, What was your reaction? Any surprise uh, out of you uh, as well on this, or did you think this was warranted on the side of the blues yeah no, definitely a surprise and i do want to mention rk we have to talk about this eric jensen asked us last week about robert thomas and the blues being a sneaky playoff team yeah. after they defeated the vegas golden knights on monday night uh, by a score of two to one since he asked that question they lost four games including games to columbus chicago and detroit which is probably the reason that craig berube ended up getting fired you know losing to teams that are bottom feeders when you are looking to make the playoffs is not ideal. Uh, so I'm going to give a little bit of the Eric Jensen jinx uh, to this one. I think that Eric definitely played a big part in Craig Berube getting fired, which is, you know, stunning to say, but the, the, the dominoes, obviously they fall as, as they go. Um, it is just, it's wild to me that Craig Berube was there for six years. It doesn't seem like he was there for six years. It doesn't feel like he was there for six years. Obviously they won the Stanley cup uh, in his first year after he took over a very, very mediocre team. And they're trying to, you know, channel that, 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 that heroic, response to to adversity i guess you would call it um yeah i just i'm not necessarily sold and i'm not necessarily sold that the blues like doing this are they changing to a stanley cup team now obviously we saw them do it in 2019 Uh, it was a real surprise but is this blues team going to repeat that again Uh, i think you can say the western conference the top of western conference with vegas uh, regardless of what the Blues do, they're probably not beating the Golden Knights in a series. It's going to be very, very tough. The Golden Knights are just a significantly su- more superior team uh, to what the Blues bring to the table. I-, I guess we'll see. 
there's a really interesting stretch coming up. They have some really, really difficult games uh, with Dallas, Tampa, and Florida coming up next week. Those are those are really, really serious games for whoever. Um, I believe they named an interim. I'm not sure who the interim is. Those are very significant games for whoever is coaching the team. Uh, let's say they go on a skid and lose four more games in a row or lose three of the next four games. Your season is cooked pretty much. Like you're in a spot where you're you're now five game five games under 500 with the wins and losses, and you fired your coach who people seem to really like and, and respect. And, and it's interesting to me. It's really weird timing for this. Obviously, we saw Minnesota do it uh, a couple weeks ago. That has not necessarily paid off for the Minnesota Wild, as we we see in the back. They're still very mediocre. Uh, changing the coach did not make them less mediocre. I think the Blues are still a wild card contender, as they would have been with Craig Berube. Um, it, it's it's very strange to me. Okay, the timing on this is super weird. I'd say. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm with you on that, and uh, I feel like they probably saw this because I don't see how much they think the roster is really going to change. Um, they, you know, they don't have any marquee free agents upcoming this year, and even you look ahead to next year, it's pretty much just Pavel Buchnevich. You know, you look at the kind of the core they've got: Kairou, Thomas, Shen, Brandon Saad, Hayes, and then on defense you have Falk, Krug, Pareko, Letty, uh, and even Annette Bennington. All of them signed for at least three years uh, still, so uh, they're going to need to kind of make that change from within that own locker room because um, I don't see how much new help they're going to get. You know. I do see a couple of good prospects for them. Dalibor Dvorsky, they took last year. Zach Bolduck right now in the AHL for them. You know, former first-round picks that maybe give them a little bit help uh, up front at forward. But I think they're uh, kind of expecting and thinking like, yeah, um, this is something that we're going to need to kind of turn this around from the guys that are, you know, already in that locker room uh, more so than anything. So um, that may be some of uh, the thought process of the change for for GM Doug Armstrong uh, and the St. Louis Blues. But nevertheless, I was definitely surprised in terms of the timing um, for that for for Craig Berube. And uh, I definitely think he's a good enough coach that another team may look to kind of scoop him up. Maybe not immediately, maybe not this season, maybe not even next season, but I think he'll get another head coaching job uh, in his career. Um, especially when you have that Stanley Cup back in 2019, that that definitely will uh, catch the eyes of, of some teams uh, down the line. So, uh, all right, let's move on to our questions for this week. Uh, nice we got uh, to bounce around a little bit there um, for some of our uh, our news uh, in sports. But let's get into questions here. Let's start off uh, with our friend Connor, regular question asker, always asking us about college football. And he's back again this week with his question, which is, is college football going to turn into the MLB uh, where teams with the most cash flows or NIL in this case for college football uh, get the best players uh, and the bottom feeder teams fall off even harder. Um, I think this is definitely current events when you look at kind of the transfer portal and you say, all right, Oregon Ducks, uh, you know, they're looking for a transfer portal quarterback. They got Dylan Gabriel, Notre Dame. They're looking for a transfer portal quarterback. And uh, that even really just goes for quarterback, but it's pretty much all positions. So I get kind of the concept here and thought, um, what's kind of your response here uh, to Connor? Do you think that this is going to be kind of the new trend and, and something we're only going to see more of in college football? Yeah, we talked about this a little bit. Uh, he's a he's a football coach. He does high school coaches high school football, so he's really big on the the aspect of just like looking around at what the next level is for uh, even for his own players. Obviously, he's he's not coaching uh, any really high level D one athletes or anything along those lines. But every once in a while, they'll get a a player that goes to a decent school. Uh, so it's interesting to look at. But yeah, it does seem like we're kind of going in in the the direction of uh, this is a professional sports league college football um there's a lot of players getting paid significant money more money than they should be paid probably in in relation to what they would make say professionally um and there's a lot of we're gonna we're gonna see down the line there's a lot of bad players who got a lot of really significant money uh guys that don't even have nfl careers or if they make it to the nfl are end up being fairly mediocre which we see all the time already um we're, we're seeing 
an opportunity for these guys to for these players to make a lot of money through college football before they make the NFL or even without making the NFL, which is really interesting. But again, it turns into a point where you just you get more money by being on a high level team. You get more money by being on an Alabama or a Georgia rather than being on a a any of the comparable teams like a Vanderbilt or an Arkansas, uh, the, the NIL money, the cash flow is just not there and there will never be enough booster money to where you can end up landing these players. So um, unless you have a situation where a team wants to give all their NIL money to one player or along something along those lines, it feels like we're turning into a, an MLB-esque system, at least where you have teams like the Dodgers and the Yankees. And I, to a lesser extent, I guess you can say teams like the Red Sox and the Astros, Texas Rangers, the Atlanta Braves, these teams are all able to spend money because of the markets they're in and because of their their funding behind the scenes. They have very, very rich owners. The Yankees, the Mets, obviously, uh, they have unlimited money. We're going to get to a point where there are college programs with theoretically unlimited money, like Alabama, if they're not there already, could probably offer tens of millions of dollars in NIL money to players, which is crazy to think about because, okay, five years ago, College football players were making nothing. They were making literally zero dollars to play football outside of, you know, stipends, stuff like that, uh, scholarship money. It feels like a really good comparison to me, at least with, with just how the direction has been with the transfer portal and with how recruiting goes. It's less about having a great educational school. It's less about having great opportunities and more about dollar bills, which uh, you could argue it's good. You could argue it's bad, but it feels a lot like it's turning into a professional league like the MLB more than anything. Yeah, it, it doesn't. I mean, even looking back, like the transfer rules have changed. Like you used to have to sit out a full season. If you're going to transfer, you can only transfer once. You know, that's no longer kind of the case. You can you know move around every season if you really want to and um, just kind of chase that. I think it's kind of the, the competition from within, like you said, like the USC's and the Miami's and the Texas's and the Alabama's of the world. Like they're competing with each other. Like they're like, oh, they're paying you this. You know, we'll pay you that. And and that's a lot of times how, um, you know, these transfers, uh, you know, we're, we're assuming are kind of going through. I don't know if it's necessarily fully like major league baseball just yet where you know it's so clearly oh you got like a luxury tax and you've got those couple teams but um i think kind of the concept of um you know teams kind of just being the highest bidder for some of these players you know year to year um i think that's something that is only going to kind of continue to grow um especially when you consider how impactful the transfer portal is on a year-to-year basis you know uh, you can kind of rebuild a a college football team with the right you know people in place you know pretty quickly now um if you have a a good support system from nil and your alumni are are backing it and on board too so um yeah, I think it's going to be tough for you know, some of these bottom feeder teams, so to speak, in, in some of these conferences, um, you know, to kind of keep up. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that overall, like they're just making the money that they're earning for their schools. So um, I think that it, it makes sense at the end of the day. And, uh, you know, some people don't like it, but uh, I think it's most fair that um, they're able to get a share of, uh, of the pie in, in NIL and you have to have to wonder if we'll ever get to a point where colleges will be allowed to pay players directly um, rather than needing it to be facilitated through NIL or, or some of their sponsors too. Um, you know, I think that's probably another discussion still a little bit ways away, but um, at least something to, you know, maybe something they consider, you know, down the line um, in college athletics and, and then football is obviously the, the best example for that since it's generating the most money, but um, I don't think it's quite MLB yet, but I think the concept and, 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 you know, that applies here um, in terms of what we're seeing right now in college football. So definitely a good question from uh from connor there uh, appreciate that one uh let's move on to eric uh eric got a couple questions for us wants us to check in again on some nhl teams um let's start with the los angeles kings donnie uh they've been off to a good start so far this year in uh, in the pacific division uh what are you seeing out of the kings uh so far this year yeah they played a game against the rangers the other night uh after going on a, a crazy 
uh, road streak. They won 11 straight road games to start off the season and then lost in overtime to the Islanders and then lost to the Rangers in regulation uh, after that. It's really impressive just in general to see a team be able to win games on the road. It doesn't matter who you're playing. Oftentimes, we see these road trips in the NHL are really, really grueling. Uh, and, and their long periods of time that you're away from home. Uh, they've had multiple three-gamer or more road trips already this year, which is really significant for an L.A. team or a New York team or a team that's on the coast because if they're traveling, like the the Kings had to travel, uh, played five game, four games in six days, uh, traveling to Columbus, Montreal, and both New York teams. That's it's serious being away from home. It's serious travel, going from L.A. to Columbus, Columbus to Montreal, Montreal to New York, and then uh, switching from the island to into the city it's really significant and the fact that they were able to weather the storm win 11 straight on the road start of the season uh, with that goaltending that is something that we uh, highlighted at the beginning of the season as a real question mark with Talbot and Copley obviously Copley has been really bad but Cam Talbot is a near Vezina candidate at this point which is just insane to say that out loud uh, given the fact that he's 34 turning 35 and has been I think we can call Cam Talbot fairly mediocre for the last couple of years. I don't think there's really much of a question there. Uh, if it's not injury concerns, him on the ice has not been great. Uh, but the Kings seem like a real wagon. Uh, obviously, the top end of the team, guys like Kempe, Fiala, Kopitar, you know what they're getting out of them. But we're seeing really, really strong years out of Quinton Byfield, which is really interesting. He's on pace for over 60 points this year, which if Quinton Byfield gives you 60 points this season, you're thinking like, okay, this team is going to be crazy dangerous for the next couple of years. Um, I, I think they're very dangerous. I'm not necessarily putting them in the same tier as Colorado and Vegas at this point. I think they would be considered a tier two Western conference team. Um, but tier two is better than anywhere else. It's really hard to get a tier one, especially when Colorado's won the Stanley cup and Vegas has won the Stanley cup in recent years, always contenders. I'm higher on the Kings. And I think I was going to be beginning of the year. And that's even with, uh, factoring out the fact that they haven't been that great at home to start off the year. Uh, it just feels like a little bit of PDO, maybe Copley turns it around a little bit. Uh, Cam Talbot will regress slightly. If things keep up a 9-10, 9-15 save percentage for the year, they're a playoff team. They could be potentially dangerous. Um, I wouldn't pick them against Vegas. I wouldn't pick them against Colorado. But anybody else in the conference, I think you could convince me the Kings are better than, which is maybe crazy to say because the Kings are you know, like the prototypical bubble team most years, it feels like. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm very much with you on on all that, and I think when I would look at the Kings, uh, you know, coming in just roster wise, I'd probably look at that forward core and say, yeah, this is pretty good. You really like the top six. You hit on Byfield, obviously taking a nice step up for them. But uh, I think it's interesting they've allowed the fewest goals in the NHL this season, and I think Talbot's definitely a big reason for that. And um, yeah, I think their defense is solid, but um, I wouldn't necessarily project them as uh, you know the team that would lead the NHL in, in fewest goals allowed at, at this point of the season. So um, that's something that obviously bodes well for them. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you that they're probably in that tier two for um, Western Conference NHL teams. But I um, you know they've been in the playoffs before. Maybe they get a little boost at the trade deadline uh, in terms of some, you know, maybe a bottom six winger to help out Pierre-Luc Dubois, who's gotten off to a little bit of a slow start coming over from Winnipeg. But um, I think there's definitely a lot to like with the Kings and, and Talbot's definitely been been rock solid for them. You know, a 930, it's kind of putting up a season we saw when he was taking over for Henwick Lundqvist as kind of that backup <laughs> role in, in the Rangers way back when. But um, that's kind of the, the throwback performance we're seeing out of him so far um, this year. Um, two other teams Eric wants us to hit on. Uh, Boston Bruins uh, are next. Um, they've obviously been really good as well. You know, a team that's been uh, second in, in fewest goals allowed. So we're, we're talking about good defensive teams here at this point. But um, what are you seeing out of the Bruins uh, so far this year, Donnie? Yeah, it's interesting. They're kind of like 
performing how a little bit better than what you've expected. Maybe how they're expecting now the last 10 games or so has not been super hot uh, for the Boston Bruins, but uh, it, it's really surprising to me to see these random veterans every year. There's always a couple guys that really take a step forward out of nowhere. Once a player retires or they sign a different place um, guys like Charlie Coyle and, and James and Reams like putting up really big years for the Bruins. I wouldn't have ever anticipated Charlie Coyle being at a near 70 point pace. I don't think that's Charlie Coyle's guy. It doesn't seem like Charlie Coyle's MO at this point, uh, but with the hole in the lineup uh, created by Krejci and Bergeron leaving, Charlie Coyle steps up, has a really, really strong start to the year, um, and also getting some some young production out of guys like Matt Poitra, um, not necessarily what you would have expected. Um, guys like that actually playing like power play time, getting significant minutes. You kind of anticipate the Bruins power play being, okay, it's Pasternak and Marshan and McAvoy and DeBrusque. They're just going to sit out there for two minutes. Nothing else going to happen. But we see some production out of other guys. We see some random, random players actually getting some minutes, playing some different um, different situations too. And also, we've seen the top line mix up a little bit too. It's not just always going to be the same guys. Uh, Pasternak has played with a couple of different wingers this year uh, on the other side of him, which is interesting because it seems like the Bruins have tried to stick with the same guys the entire season. Um, but yeah, it, it's really interesting to me to see the Bruins consistently contending. Uh, you are the biggest fan ever of their goaltending tandem. Uh, I We talk about it all the time, but that is what it is, is it not? The goaltending duo is just what's propelling them to be this great. And it is something that every NHL team should strive to do. Like every NHL team should strive to have this type of, of duo because they're not getting paid a crazy amount. They love playing together. They love the cadence that they play together. You see them celebrate after every win. They're really happy for each other's success. Like I think it's just a, a good culture. Great goaltenders really buying in to try to win a Stanley Cup. It's hard to get these egos right. It's hard to get the, these things right in the NHL, but it seems like Boston's really done it. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. And it's interesting, you know, they opted to keep Swayman uh, this offseason, let go of, you know, some of the uh, depth, uh, forward depth that they had. You know, we knew we lost some of the centers, but I'm um, thinking about guys like Taylor Hall and Nick Polino that moved on from the Bruins and, and they opted to kind of keep that goaltending duo. And, uh, you know, that's been a big reason for their success. I, you know, they have got a great T-core as well. And you look at even just McAvoy and Lindholm at the top, but, um, you know, Carlo, Shattenkirk, Grizzlick have, have all been pretty solid for them um, this season uh, as well. Um, it's interesting you say that in terms of, every team should should try to strive to have two really good goalies because uh, the other team Eric's asking is about the Vegas Golden Knights you know they've got a different idea of building a team they're just going to load up on D and, and forwards and just say hey whatever we got in net it's fine but right now it's Aiden Hill and and since he's won the Stanley Cup he's turned into one of the best goalies uh, in all of the NHL so um, you know the guy who was their third stringer last year all of a sudden is uh, you know near the top of the NHL and in, in most of these goaltending stats so um, you know Vegas we're kind of checking in on uh, on what we've seen out of them but number one team in the NHL I mean it's hard to say things that are, are not going well with uh, the defending Stanley Cup champs right now. Yeah, they are far. Uh, and I mean, like, I think you could say they're, they're the best team in the league by a really significant amount so far this season, which is crazy to say because we've seen teams like Boston, like the Rangers, even Vancouver uh, start off really well. It's it's they are the total opposite of what the Boston Bruins have done with the goaltending, yet somehow the success is still there. I do want to mention Logan Thompson has also been really good. Uh, so they've kind of found the talent there, even though they may not have big name goaltenders. They've got the cheap goaltenders doing their job. Um, but it is really interesting just to see like they've they've really committed to keeping this kind of core together. Obviously, they let Riley Smith go at this last offseason, but um, Eichel, Stone, Carlson, Marcheseau, Chandler Stevenson, uh, Shea Theodore, these guys are all producing crazy numbers. Jack Eichel 
I, it's just different out there for Jack Eichel. Jack Eichel has a little bit of Connor McDavid in him with the playmaking ability. It just seems like when he's got the puck on his stick, like things are happening every time he touches the puck, whether or not they're scoring, um, whether or not they're getting the greatest chances every time, they're still getting the puck to the net. And there's always guys that are there just fighting around the goalie when Jack Eichel has the puck on his stick. Uh, it, it's It's been amazing to see what Vegas has been able to build themselves into uh, in just a short couple of years. Obviously, we will see if they can hold on and hold up because we haven't seen Aiden Hill and Logan Thompson be able to give you a full 82 yet. Uh, so we will see if that is the case. Obviously, Logan Thompson was dealing with injury concerns for the last year and a half. So we'll see how that goes. But the Vegas Golden Knights, man, I think you can really look at it. And, and I mean, again, it's not like we're talking about the Boston Bruins being bad or anything because, you know, they, they're in a great position themselves. But you have to look at, like, Bruce Cassidy is is impeccable. Bruce Cassidy is that guy at this point. Bruce Cassidy is who everybody in the league uh, wants their coach to strive to be because it just seems like every little move that he does, um, the culture is great. The Vegas Golden Knights players love him and love playing there. It just they've they've managed to really build something special out of what seemed to be nothing just a couple of years ago. A team that I wouldn't have anticipated being this this dominant force is they could be doing this for the next three, four, five years, and nobody would even have any qualms with it. It's like it seems like almost a guarantee they're going to be good. Yeah, I I feel exactly that uh, on Vegas. You know, not not much not going right for them, so they're going to be <laughs> you know right at the top of uh, of the favorites to to repeat at this point in time uh, until someone you know is is ready to kind of knock them off. So um, good uh, good thoughts from uh, from Eric on that, hitting on some of the top teams uh, in the NHL. Um, let's move on. He's got two other questions for us. Eric's back asking us about the Denver Broncos because they got a win on Sunday over uh, the Chargers. So they sit at seven and six right now, the number nine seed in the AFC top seven, make, uh, make the postseason. Any more thoughts to the Broncos making the playoffs down here? Are we still kind of brushing this to the side? Yeah, I'm going to call it a no still. Uh, unfortunately for Eric Jensen, I don't believe, even though we have seen the Chiefs falter a little bit, it's kind of opened the door for the Denver Broncos to maybe sort of compete for the West. I don't think it's going to happen. I would anticipate that it's going to be tough sledding. Um, they're probably going to have to beat every team they play the rest of the year, which is Detroit, New England, the Chargers, and then in Vegas uh, week 18. They're probably going to have to win out, you would assume. Uh, one loss makes it really difficult, as you mentioned uh, earlier on the show. We talked about the Buffalo Bills being very, very far down there with the same record as the Denver Broncos, just like Cincinnati, just like Houston, Indianapolis, Pittsburgh. There's an opportunity to make the wild card. I wouldn't call it a great opportunity. And if they did make the wild card, I wouldn't be thrilled about their chances against anybody. Um, maybe I'll, I'm going to get, I'll give them like a 17% chance to make the playoffs, which is probably the highest I would have given them all year at this point. Um, I, I still don't see it. I don't think you want them to make the playoffs if you're a Broncos fan. You'd probably prefer it if they got a higher pick, uh, added some talent, maybe ended up trading up in the draft and adding a really high-level player to your team because the Broncos have done a lot of shedding uh, high-end players the last couple of years. We've seen some guys like Von Miller, for example, uh, depart. They kind of need to re replenish that a little bit, but I, I guess I'll give them a shot, RK. I guess I'm going to have to admit the Broncos are in a spot to where they could potentially make a wild-card spot fairly easily, I guess. Yeah, I think so, especially you consider toughest game left for them is this week at Detroit, but not a conference game, which is what we're looking at for the tiebreaker. A bunch of those teams kind of bundled up at seven and six right now. So your conference games left, you got New England, who they can't even figure out who their own quarterback is. The Chargers, who just lost theirs, and they just beat the Chargers. And then the Raiders, who also are on a backup quarterback with Aiden O'Connell <laughs> at this point in time. So that sets up well for the Broncos, but you know they're going to lose one of those games. Like, you just know it. You know they're going to come up short and just be the Broncos and like, man, we couldn't even beat the LA Chargers with the Easton stick 
even though we just beat them 24 like you know something's gonna happen with the broncos so i'm still cool. saying no on uh, on that but hey they're showing some fight so you know you're making us think more than you did a couple weeks ago eric but the answer is still no from donnie and i on uh, on broncos playoffs um the good thought though uh and then last question from eric how many championships will shohei otani win with the la dodgers we talked about it earlier 10 year 700 million dollar deal i don't think we can count the deferred payments as as times in these titles if he's long gone but still cashing checks like bobby bonilla i don't think he's getting a ring from the mets even though they're never winning in a championship and even if they did so we're just saying the next 10 years donnie how many championships for otani with the dodgers what's your prediction i mean i think the realistic and fair uh one would just be saying one i think that that's the the honest and, and just brutal truth of things is like there are really good teams in the mlb the the atlanta Braves will have the same core for the next decade and it's it's going to be there and they're going to be really good for the next decade like you already know that obviously in the al there's going to be good teams like the Houston Astros are going to be good. The Yankees will probably be pretty good for the next 10 years. They're, they're really taking a step forward, it looks like. Um, so I would say one. One to two is is the, the answer, I would say. Uh, one, would I would say almost a guarantee, because it just feels like with that much talent, obviously Mookie Betts, Freddie Freeman, and Shohei Otani maybe the best trio ever to play together in a lineup. I mean, there's obviously been a lot of really good trios in MLB, but it's hard to find. Uh, guys that just do what Freddie and Mookie do and then add Shohei Otani, who is quite literally the best player in baseball maybe ever um, historically. So it would be interesting. But I would guarantee one. I would I would say two is probably a possibility. I don't think they're getting any more than two. I don't think it's that – like, I just don't think baseball's like that at this point. Um, the next 10 years are going to be very tightly contested over the what seems to be a handful of teams that really want to win. And I mean, at some point, RK, you got to think teams like the Cubs will step into it. They will be back at the top of the league. They will be very competitive. It only takes a matter of time with teams that spend a lot of money and build up their team like that. Yeah, I'd say one, maybe two, no more than that. It's it's not, we're not, not five, not six, not seven. We're not doing that. Okay. There's no LeBron here. Um, Baseball is really hard. It just is what it is. Yeah, I'm going to say two uh, for my guess here uh, as well, just because, you know, the Dodgers are always in the mix. Like, yeah, like, you know, they've got uh, like they're always in the playoffs because they win their division. So it's like, yeah, they've got a long history of losing in the playoffs. But it's like it's like knocking LeBron for like uh, like getting to the finals and losing in the finals. Like, dude, he just ran the Eastern Conference like the, the Dodgers are running the NL West. Like, I don't think this is slowing down uh, really anytime soon. They're going to be in the mix. So uh, I think over the next 10 years, you know, I think two is, is a pretty safe bet. But like you said, you know, I don't, I don't think they're going they're winning eight of the next 10. You know, I don't think okay. it's anything like that. But, but RK, how many division titles do they have with Shohei Otani in the next 10 years? Are we giving them 10? I mean, they could. I, I think that that's probably probably nine. I mean, you, you throw in the random Giants 101 season that happened out of nowhere. Like, that was a real thing. So, I get like, pr- probably nine, though. <laughs> the Arizona will win one at some point. Corbin Carroll, MVP season 2027. The Arizona Diamondbacks win 109 games. You're sitting there like, okay, fine, whatever. I'm giving them nine. It's not going to be 10. That's the better question here. Like, do they yeah. run the table for the next decade? It, it's definitely a possibility. Could happen. Could happen. And then I guess the other caveat here is injuries, obviously, with Otani. Like I mentioned, we know he's going to be out with the elbow uh, injury, at least in terms of pitching. But, um, you know, you're kind of just want to wrap this guy in bubble wrap because of the potential that he can have and and you never want him to get hurt. But, um, you know, obviously his injury potential is probably a little bit higher than just about any other player, um, just with in terms of the demands of what he's asked to do. But that's why you can kind of shelter it, you know, not use him in the field, DH him, whatever you need. But, um, yeah, I I think that that's probably the only thing that could kind of get in the way. But, um, yeah. I'll say uh, I'll say there'll be a lot of success for the Dodgers, nevertheless. But um, yeah, definitely at least one. I, 
I think is a pretty safe bet for for the Dodgers with Otani. But uh, good question from uh, Eric. Appreciate all of his thoughts. Uh, maybe if the Broncos keep winning, it'll keep bugging us and, and we'll get closer. But not yet here on this podcast. 180 of Roadie on the Horn. We're saying no Broncos playoffs. But the dream is still alive for Eric. We appreciate the, the consistency of coming back, unlike Patrick Mahomes, who would have complained about the refs for not <laughs> allowing them into the playoffs. So uh, good question. All right. Let's move on. This next one comes from my dad. Interesting question here. I had to think about this one a little bit. He said, if you could automatically get any former player or coach into any sports hall of fame that otherwise probably would not get into the hall of fame, who would you choose and why? Uh, I think this brings up a great conversation. You know, like who are some of those guys that, um, you know, we don't think they're going to get into the hall of fame, but uh, you know, realistically you could put them in. Uh, who, who's the, who are the people that come to mind for you here, Donnie uh, on this? Yeah, see, the issue with this in Hall of Fame questions, I always default to baseball because it does feel like there's guys from, uh, say, the steroids era or even uh, like Pete Rose feels like a pretty good example because it's almost guaranteed that he's never in the Hall of Fame because of what he did, um, gambling, cheating and such. Um, not really cheating, didn't really do anything against his team, but it doesn't seem like he's going to get there. Or Barry Bonds, for example, who will probably never get in, hasn't really had much support, even though he is the home run leader. But I'm going to go a complete 180 for episode 180. I'm going to go with Devin Hester. I think that it's a really, really interesting situation just to look at in the NFL. There's never been a, a kick returner slash punt returner put in, uh, somebody that's just solely a kick returner, punt returner. Usually they play wide receiver or running back uh, to where they have done something outside of their kick returning slash punt returning uh, ability there. But I'm a big fan of just the Hall of Fame actually awarding players who were deserve the fame for their specific uh, role or specific uh, contribution. Devin Hester is very, very easily the best punt returner in NFL history. Uh, 14 punt return touchdowns, it's NFL record. The next most is 10. Um, he's got the third most punt return yards of all time, five kick return TDs, uh, 12th all-time in kick return yards, four-time Pro Bowler, three-time All-Pro. Uh, Hall of Fame only has four kickers and one punter in it. Why not invite special teams players into the Hall of Fame? Devin Hester is the the guaranteed like GOAT punt returner, kick returner, I would say. I don't think there's much of a, an argument there. Obviously, you can bring up like Dante Hall, guys like that. Um, Always been very good. But Devin Hester is just like different gravy. And it does feel like he has received zero respect from those discussing this. We've had this question before. We've heard this question before from media outlets before. Devin Hester doesn't get brought up very often. Why not put, if, if you're the best at what you do in a sport like football to where you can make a really big difference like Devin Hester did, I don't see why not. It feels like a no-brainer to me. I thought it would have happened already, um, but it does seem like there's probably not going to be – it's probably not going to be a reality, which is just crazy to think about. Yeah, I love that answer. I mean, I feel like when you think of the Hall of Fame, you want to like tell the story of football to you know people that are just in there observing. And Devin Hester changed the history of football. They moved the kickoffs up from the thirty to the thirty-five yard line. Teams were kicking it out of bounds rather than kicking it to Devin Hester. Like um, this guy absolutely changed the game, and you know was electric anytime he touched the ball. Um, and obviously had a kick return touchdown to start a Super Bowl. So you had kind of a marquee moment with Hester there um, as well. So love that answer from you on on uh, on Devin Hester. For me, I'm going with Bo Jackson on this one and I, he's not getting in because of his stats he only played four years uh in the nfl and and even baseball wise it was eight years of a career for him so he doesn't have the longevity to get in with stats wise but i just think this guy is one of the best athletes of all time he was an all-star in baseball he was a pro bowler in football i mean few people could do it quite like bo jackson obviously he won a uh, a heisman trophy so he'll be in the college football hall of fame he is but um i just think this guy had such an impact in terms of just what a crazy athlete he was that um you can't really tell the story of 
matchup of uh, I'm mostly thinking, I guess, of football here um, with running back Bo Jackson. But I mean, even baseball, Bo Jackson was a freak of nature, too. And you consider his arm and, um, you know, power he had uh, swinging the bat at, you know, 32 home runs uh, in his all star season uh, with the Royals. So um, I think Bo Jackson, um, you know, he's not getting in because of the uh, the stats. And um, yeah, there's plenty of guys like in the steroid era that, that won't get in for baseball. But I feel like, I, again, with the theme you said with Hester, like you can't tell the story of, uh, of, of these sports sometimes without uh, Bo Jackson being included. So um, I think this is a great question. I definitely wasn't, you know, necessarily thinking of, of this light. But um, yeah, I like our answers there with uh, with Hester and, uh, and Bo Jackson um, on that question. So good one from my dad. Appreciate that one. Now, end of the podcast, designated spot, my sister Kira and her boyfriend, Phil, they're back again with a question for us. Getting in the Christmas spirit here a little bit, Donnie, we're, we're getting closer to the day when Santa comes down, all of our chimneys, it'll be a lot of fun, but we're not talking about the inside and the hot cocoa and the Christmas trees right now. Question for the week from Kira and Phil, how much snow is ideal on Christmas day? Give me, give me kind of your snow range for ideal Christmas day snow outside. What do you think, Donnie? Yeah, I think I'd rather prefer it to be light than anything. Um, I would probably say somewhere between like three to six inches would be optimal and ideal, um, especially assuming I don't have to leave the house or go do anything. Um, that would be that that would be nice. You want it to be nice to look at, but you don't want it to be an overwhelming amount of snow. I don't want to be snowed in the house ever. That's never a situation that that interests me. Even on Christmas Day when I don't have to leave the house, I don't want two feet of snow. That is never an ideal situation at all. But I, I think. The, the beauty of Christmas is, you know, you get a white Christmas, you're kind of vibing, like things feel all right. It, it's just how, it's how the, the morale is supposed to be. You're supposed to be feeling good with some, you wake up, there's snow outside, um, you get some hot cocoa, you you look at the beautiful scenes outside, but you don't want, you don't want a, a metric ton of snow. I'm going to say like four inches is the ideal perfect amount of snow for Christmas day. Just enough to where it's blanketing everything, just enough to where it's making things look nice, um, where I'm assuming that the plows can still get the, the the roads open for those that need to travel because Christmas Day is a big travel day. Um, it's not ideal to have a foot or more of snow when people need to travel. That means that there's going to be car crashes and accidents, and you never want that on Christmas Day. So four inches feels like the optimal amount for everybody to be happy. Even if you don't like snow, you can sit there and be like, okay, like Christmas Day, I'll take I'll take a white Christmas. It, it's always ideal. Yeah, I, I'm with you. We don't want too much snow. I think the caveats for me, I don't want a shovel. So like, let's just keep it light. You know, I'm not trying to, I'm trying to get the snowblower out here on Christmas day. I'm good on that. I, I think the underrated aspect and maybe you, you want a little snow, but I'm okay with no snow. I'm okay with grass. Okay. So I'm putting zero snow in the, in the range of possibilities here, but I'm saying between zero and two inches, I'm saying a little bit less. I feel like what would be nice is if it's just like a little flurries outside, like on Christmas morning. So like, instead of you waking up to a little bit of snow on the ground, just give me like a little flurries in the air. You look outside, okay. like, all right, there's some snowflakes coming down, but nothing's really sticking too much. It's nothing crazy. So, uh, I, you know, maybe this is like the global warming edition of snow, but uh, I'm saying like a little bit less between zero and two inches. No snow is okay, but just give me a little flurries in the air, a little snowflakes, uh, and, I, and I'm good to go on, uh, on Christmas day. I don't need the whole white Christmas. I don't need a, two feet of snow, like you're saying. So I'm, I'm saying keep it light, keep it light, but give me a little snow in the air on Christmas Day. Yeah, see, maybe I agree with that. Maybe that's the, the move that we're looking for. Um, I do. I want enough snow to where like I feel no pressure to go outside, especially with the NBA right. and NFL schedule going on. Um, so that that is an important part of it. Uh, I would like it to be just a little amount. I Maybe I'm not thinking zero because it is depressing just going outside. Oh, no, no snow. 
where we're going <laughs> to die someday because it's it's 75 degrees today at Christmas Day, and this is not what I'm looking for. But um, I, I'll, maybe I, maybe my range was too high. Maybe six inches would be a little bit too much to ask of. Maybe I'm thinking like two or three inches is the perfect one. Now that you you went through your answer, it kind of resonates with me a little bit. I'm not going to lie. You you kind of you hit a chord here inside my body, and I'm, I'm thinking now. Let's go. I love it. I'm getting uh, I'm getting the wheels turning on on less snow on Christmas Day. So I'll I'll have to let the weatherman know because obviously he picks the weather and Santa Claus. They collaborate. The the one weatherman in the world and Santa Claus. They're like, how much snow this year? And now we now we now we told him. We're like, all right, keep it light, guys. Keep it light on uh, on Jesus's birthday this year for us. Just keep it simple for us. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we can only control so much. Obviously, up north, we're not talking about like northern Canada or anything. Like, they're gonna get, they're gonna get six feet of snow. Like, it's gonna happen. Buffalo, it's probably gonna be snowy up in Buffalo. You just know how that's gonna work. But uh, where RK and I are specifically on Christmas Day, two inches weatherman slash Santa slash I guess Sheck West because he's involved in this right. whole this whole de- deciphering of what the weather's gonna be as well. Obviously, a lot of power there. Um, I I'm I'm with it. I'm with it, RK um let, let's leave the six feet of snow for those in, in Nunavut or whatever up in up in the middle of nowhere in northern Canada like I, I'm, I'm chilling here at Alaska you can take the snow Canada you take the snow I'm, I'm good with two inches I'm happy with that I think I've really come I, I did some like legitimate thought on this question too I want I want you to understand I really put some 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 thought into this I went back through my snapchat memories and saw what what the snow was looking like the last couple of years because I would take pictures of it if there was snow outside I'm thinking you you've hit it all you've hit the nail on the head here, RK. You've you've really you figure something out here. I appreciate that out of you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Normally at this point of the podcast, I say, Oh, let me know your thoughts too, but I actually don't need them for this question. Yeah, we, we don't want we don't want your thoughts. It. Yeah, we we've settled the, the correct amount of snow. So any other thoughts that are disagreement with us are I don't want to see it. They're invalid, not okay. Check West, he would not approve of it, as Donnie said. So all right. Been a good podcast. A lot of different things, just kind of bounced around a bunch of things. That's Rody on the horn for you. So hopefully you guys enjoyed it. But Donnie, I'll pass it over to you to wrap us up. You know, obviously, who would have guessed that we were going to get news on all four major sports in December? Uh, that's always a, a pleasure, always a blessing here. It's definitely not going to be the case for moving forward. Uh, the next de- December, January podcast, I'm assuming the NBA and the NHL will probably end up going. Uh, it'll be quiet here the next couple weeks. But I am very excited to have all of this baseball news come out. Obviously, the football season, the Giants are making the playoffs out of nowhere, RK. We're really thrilled about that. Uh, Giants-Eagles NFC Championship game is going to be just tremendous. It's going to be yeah. a fantastic, fantastic game. Um, yeah, obviously not. Obviously not. Uh, but yeah, we really appreciate everybody who asked questions. Quite a few question answers, quite a few questions this week. Eric laid off of asking us 11 questions, which is good. Three, very optimal. Uh, RK and I are very thankful for that. Uh, we do appreciate everybody who does listen this late. Obviously, you are part of the folk. Um, and I do want to call a shout out here. Um, it's kind of an anti shout out. Scotty G, where's Scotty G with the questions? What's Scotty G been doing? The captaincy, once again, it's looking questionable. You're like Dustin Brown, the end of your career. We're kind of thinking about stripping the captaincy. You're, you're, you're throwing us off, Scotty G. If you hear this, if you're listening, we need questions. We need you to be more of a part of it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed. I'm disgusted that our listener captain hasn't been a big part of this podcast recently, but. For those that have, we really appreciate it. And we'll be back yet again next week with another episode. RK, it's up to you. Say say your say your stuff. What do we got? Say the line, Brett. That's what I was thinking right there. Say Peace, the, everybody. The Peace, everybody. Life couldn't get better. This gonna be the best.